Hi, everybody. It's Trish Carr from Women's Prosperity Network. Welcome to Sister to Sister. I'm so glad that you're taking this time to be with us here today. This broadcast is all about sharing stories of real people, real experiences that shed a light on what happens in America when you're Black. Simple experiences that many of my sisters who are of color have experienced. And the goal here is to just shed a light, open our hearts and open our minds to what's happening out in the world. So my guest today, I'm so thrilled to have with me. She's a best-selling author of a book called Pebbles in the Pond. I love that title. She is a 12 and a half year army veteran who survived not only Desert Storm, but a debilitating plane crash and has come out on the other side. She's the mediator for the state of Georgia and a certified life coach who specializes in parent coaching. She also has a varied background, having been in the military, and she grew up in a rural area, but has lived in major metropolitan areas as well. So she's got the whole uh, experience of America in different types of places. She's also the mother of, as she calls it, three chocolate men. And she's going to share her story of what it's like to be Black in the U.S. And I'm so glad that you're with us today. Please say hello to New Love Jones. New Love, thanks for being with me today. <laughs> Hi, Trish. Thank you for having me. Thank I appreciate you, so you and this opportunity. Yes. Um, yes, like you said, I am the mom of three chocolate men who happen to be triplets. So um, I'm really excited to be here, though, because I thank you for this platform, especially in this time. And I'll just jump right into, because I have so, so many experiences when it comes to being on the other side of race and um, how ugly it can be for people who look like me. So um, I did grow up in rural South Carolina. I went to Strong Thurman High School. Um, for those of you who are familiar with Strong Thurman, who served in the Senate for a very long time, he was a strong advocate of segregation. And I went to a school that was diverse, but a lot of us were bused in. And you know, there were a lot of wealthy white people in this children in this school, family, whose families were wealthy in this school. And there were poor children like me who um, just even something as simple as turning in a paper. Like I didn't have technology in my home, not even a typewriter. So the teacher would actually take points off of my paper for it being handwritten when that was the only option I had. So there were people who were not as smart as me who were getting grades really close to mine sometimes. And, um, and that's kind of the, the basis and uh, that, that's, that's kind of thing that I went through um, as a child. And my mom wasn't as much of an advocate for me as I was for my children. So um, I had to deal with it. And then I thought that was the end of it when I left there. But when I when I went through college and joined the military, um, I found that the Army was one of the most racist organizations I'd ever been a part of. And um, just to give an example, I went to a very covenant, um, after going through my, um, my basic officers course, I was in the Signal Corps, I was at Fort Gordon. As a matter of fact, while I was there, I was introduced to Jane Elliott, who talks about the issue of race in America and that we all are one race, the human race. For those of you who are familiar with her work, 
And I, um, I'm glad I heard her story and the, about the study that she had conducted because it gave me a whole nother idea of the psyche that is behind racism. And it helped me a lot during, as I matriculated through my life in the military, especially. And um, just for, for example, as a very new lieutenant going through this course at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in, um, uh, in the Air Force Institute of Technology, I guess I checked two blocks for the Army because they sent me the only woman and the only Black person in the course. And that was a very toxic environment for me. The guys there made it real clear. I did not belong there. It was a program that required corporation teamwork. And, and I was so alienated that to the point where one day I just decided I'm not going to show up because how can I be so invisible and so hyper visible at the same time? But I decided to show up. And those of you who know the military, if you don't show up for your duty, then you're considered AWOL. Mm -hmm. But the uh, class leader called me uh, on the phone and it just rang all morning. I didn't answer until um, eventually he came to my apartment with the apartment manager and the police. And I was in the restroom because, you know, I was young, so I would sleep naked, really. And so I was in the, I was in the restroom, uh, in the bathroom with the door open. And then all I heard was the door opening and I, and I didn't know what was going on. And then I saw the clock, cop coming um, into, and then I hurry up and close the bathroom door and then asked them to leave while I came out of the bathroom and got dressed. But there were no actions taken against me because they knew exactly um, what they had put me through. They knew that they had created this toxicity that made it very, very um, impossible for me to really deal with the situation. I mean, it got so bad that I couldn't work out. I was at an Air Force Institute, one, and we as army people, we, we are physically fed. You know, I just left my basic course where I was maxing my PT test. And here I was, I couldn't run. I didn't have the desire to run. I was so stressed out that I ended up going to the eye doctor because my vision was blurred. And I thought maybe there was something wrong with my vision, but he made it real clear to me that if you're under a lot of stress, then that could be the cause of your blurred vision because we're seeing that you're 20-20. And um, so as it turns out, people started in my course started to walk on eggshells after that. You know, it, it was even worse, you know, because they made they knew I was aware of what they were doing. And then they didn't know how to recover from it, because as Brene Brown talks about, like the shame resiliency, mm -hmm. I had developed it. Um, I didn't know what it was at the time, but I developed it because I had to deal with race my whole life. You know, as I've said on some of the calls with you guys on Wednesday, you ladies on Wednesday, is that um, I'm a part of a race conversation, whether I'm an active participant or not, just because of how I look. And the sad thing is a lot of people talk about race or against people who look like me, don't even know that skin is an organ. Like you're judging me on the basis of how my organ looks, which is crazy to me. But anyway, so that's, that's an example of what I dealt with. And then I left that course on my way to airborne school. And that was a whole nother experience because my mom had just gotten out of the hospital 
and I really wanted to spend time with her. So I stayed longer with her than I should on the day that I was supposed to report for airborne school. And um, I don't know if you recall or not, but Oprah had done a show on, on her, um, on the Oprah Winfrey show years ago when it talked about Forsyth County oh, and yeah. the people there wanted it to stay all white. Oh, and yeah. I didn't know that I would be traveling through Forsyth County, but I did stay at my mom's house beyond dark. And here I was on my way to airborne school, traveling through Atlanta. I actually was so distracted because I was concerned about her health that I ended up on 285 and I missed my exit. So, you know, if you missed the exit, you know, you're you going to... all around the city. <laughs> back then, you know, there weren't as many exits back then as there are now. So I ended up going around a couple of times. And, um, and then because I was traveling with truckers, I was speeding. I was trying to get there. Um, it was late. And um, I got off on my exit onto this uh, dark road, um, back road going through Forsyth County. I didn't know where I was, but I just knew I needed to get to uh, airborne school. And I hit the top of a hill. And as soon as I started to come over that hill, a blue light flashed. And then um, the cops pulled me over and it was two white cops. They looked like, honestly, like a number 10. One was tall and thin and one was short and round. But um, I was so afraid. And I'm glad I didn't think about the Oprah show and that I was in Forsyth County or any of that because, but I still knew that this could mean trouble for me. And I started talking real fast, you know, I'm in the army, I'm on my way to airborne school. Um, my command is expecting me, I gotta get there by this time. I just talked to them before I got off the interstate, whatever, whatever, because I wanted them to know that somebody was expecting me. I was going somewhere, I was, you know, somebody was waiting for me on the other side, but they kept looking at each other really weird, creepy. And they look out towards the woods because there was nothing out there but woods. And, um, and then when they start to look at each other, I start talking again, you know, so they would look at me and, um, and they said, oh, so you're, you're in the army. Where are you going so fast, little lady? You know, just really... Uh, all the things you don't want to happen to you when you look like me, um, especially in 1989. I mean, nothing's much changed since then, but especially in 1989. But um, so they, they played with me. I could tell they were toying with me. And it was like they were kind of deciding whether or not to let me go. But they did eventually let me go. And I left there so thankful that all I got was a speeding ticket. I was so grateful to pay that speeding ticket because it could have been so much worse. And then when I left the, um, when I left the airborne, when I left airborne school, my first permanent duty station was Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I'd heard a lot of not so good things about, especially paratroopers and me having been assigned uh, to the 82nd Airborne um, Division, I asked them, I begged them to change my orders. So they actually changed my orders and I went to a signal unit instead. And um, so I wouldn't requ be required to jump. I, I just heard so many bad things about 82nd, but they were up on top of the hill from where I was in terms of our, our headquarters. And, um, but when I got to my unit, um, I got there in 89, of course, Desert Storm happened in 1990. Right. right. And at the time it happened, I was 
one of two lieutenants in my unit. There was one guy who was senior to me. He was, um, he was a white guy. He told the, the command that he didn't want to go because his wife was pregnant with their first child. And so immediately I was put on the deployment list. And in the meantime, between the time I was put on the deployment list until um, I was supposed to report, well, I went on leave. I, went, I took a pass rather, and I ended up in a plane crash and um, didn't know how much I was injured because I was so gung-ho. I actually ran a four mile run three days after the plane crash because that was just the mode that I was in. And I was not somebody who was a, a wildering, a wildering little flower or, you know, like I was brainwashed to think that this is what I needed to do. And, um, and so I was taken off the deployment roster. However, over the next couple of months, they still wanted a Lieutenant to go. And that guy was fighting not to go because his wife was expecting their first child. There are a lot of women who had their babies and were sent back right away. So this was a good old boy networking kind of thing, like preserve the, the white family, basically. And even though he didn't go, I ended up doing his job and mine while I was there because I was eventually put on orders and sent over there. Even I, I was still limping and everything. And, um, and when it was time for our rating, the battalion commander brought me in to say, well, I know you've done all of these things and you supported our unit in this way. However, he's, you know, promotable to captain. He has a real new, real young family. So I'm gonna give him this rating. Well, this was my first rating. So I didn't know how the military worked. I didn't have any mentorship. I didn't know. Um, what to expect i go oh so this is what we do we protect people with families we give them what they don't deserve even you know even at the expense of somebody else's career and and so i didn't have any recourse because the company commander who um the company commander uh, wasn't going to um advocate for me because he i was told that he had brought me to de the desert to take care of him. To take care of him? To take care of him, as in sexually. Oh, that's why I was deployed, even though I was still limping and everything, that's why I was deployed. And the soldiers were even telling me this, oh, so you're the lieutenant, you know, but that's a whole other story. So he wasn't going to advocate for me and the fact that I deserved a better rating than I was getting. And, and, and that's kind of how my, my whole military career was. It was one toss after another. I had some great um, commanders in, in between, but a lot of it was that way. As a matter of fact, the battalion commander who replaced the guy who gave me the jacked up rating, um, he came in with very sexual energy. Um, I played softball. Before the crash, I played for the post team. But afterwards, I just played for my unit team. And, um, and so he came to our game the first day he had taken command. And as I was sitting down, taking off my sneakers, putting on my cleats, he walked up to me and he said to me, 
um, Lieutenant Jones, you have very athletic looking legs. And he wasn't looking at my legs. He was looking at the V between my legs. And that was how he progressed um, throughout to the point where I made it real clear I'm not interested. And I guess he wasn't used to that. So he would tell one of my peers who was a white guy who golfed with him that he didn't like that I looked him in his eyes. He didn't, he, he didn't like that um, I thought I knew everything. I mean, he and this guy, I don't know if he was a double agent or what, but he was bringing his information back to me, you know, and I think he felt bad about it to some degree, but he liked the fact that the, the colonel, lieutenant colonel liked him and he knew that he was going to take care of him. But he, so he was being his messenger. And, and, and this is a guy who, when he first came in, I had a really amazing company commander. It was a white woman. And I think I told you about her on Friday. You she did. was just as vanilla as I am chocolate. And she was so smart and so caring. Um, and I was really blessed to be under her command. And she fought for me to get a good rating with this guy because he, he had just come in like six months in, I was rated by him. And, but between that time and the next rating, which was nine months, 19 days later, I went from being the most stellar lieutenant in my battalion to the worst lieutenant in my battalion. As a matter of fact, I had served as a lieutenant for nine months of the nine months, 19 days, and I was promoted. He rated me with the captains. And I don't know if you understand that, but that was intentional. That was for me to be the bottom of the bottom, because how can I compete with the captains? Exactly. Yeah. So do you think that when you look back, well, first of all, let me just say kudos to you for making it 12 and a half years. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm thinking, how did you last as long as you did? I can tell you're resilient and you just did what you had to do. But, you know, we hear about the military and how, you know, with the Me Too movement, um, you hear more and more about it. I'm sure these things still go on. Absolutely. Of course. And so you were a woman and you were a black woman. Did you see the same type of um, sexual innuendo and and, um, harassment happening with white women as well? No. As a matter of fact... um... (laughs) The fact that you say that, no, I, I saw that they were treated very gently, you know, and they were taken care of. There, there was one lieutenant that worked with me in another company, but alongside me, she didn't have the idea of what a site designator was. And that's something that, that's like basic officers, signal corps officers training 101. She, and she'd been in the army for two years. I mean, we were out on a field exercise and she goes, what is this circle with this, these letters in it? You know, like something basic that everyone But she was somebody who this particular battalion commander assigned to do a party. And he said, make sure you have country music. She did these things and she gave, he was giving her a coin and, you know, like they find ways to take care of people, to give awards, to, to beef up their resume and their, um, you know, and give them all of these, like all these accommodations that you see sometimes on, you wonder like, did they really earn them or were they given to them? Because a lot of times they're given. 
though it was a bit, it was a good old boys club and it included the white women it, yeah, as well. It took, yeah, it took care of yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. You know, one I, of the things you mentioned to me was um, when your boys were younger and they were in school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I heard that story about how your boys were treated differently simply because you were a single black mother, it, it just blew my mind. Would you mind sharing that? Oh, no. Um, well, well, let, let me just start with when we were in California, though, um, my sons went, when I applied for school for them, um, I, was t- I was told that they needed to be taken for a psyche valve and all, all kinds of things because the program was only for certain children. So I went in with this psychiatrist and five minutes into the session, this was like my sons were, I went in the middle of the day. So I was taken, um, taking them out of their nap time, traveling an hour. Um, and she was with them five minutes and she goes, oh yeah, they have hyperactivity, whatever. And then here's a prescription. And, and, <laughs> and they were four years old. Wow. Four. And I go, I'm not getting, you know, I'm thinking I'm not giving my sons medication that I know them and they're, they're not any, you know, there, there are no problems. And my sons never had any development issues, even though they were 10 weeks early, they were preemies. And the doctor had said they, they might be late developing this, that, or whatever, but I never had any problems with my sons. And they were children I read to every night. They were very bright and energetic. But anyway, when we moved from California to Georgia, they were put in IEP. And with these being my first I, children. IEP is? IEP, individual Educational Program Plan or something. I can't remember what the acronym is for. But um, they, um, they were um, placed there. And this is a program that if your child is placed there, you're part of this pro you're part of the deciding body you know you are in on it i was not in on it which says that they were doing something that they weren't supposed to be doing and this is their second semester into their kindergarten year is when we moved from california to georgia and it wasn't until they were in fourth grade when my son darius's teacher asked me well why is darius an iep and I go, what is IEP? I don't know what that is. And she said, you had to have signed off on it. And I go, no, I didn't sign off on anything. And so when I talked to the principal, she said, oh, yeah, but it's no big deal. And I go, well, let me see the documents. And when I read the documents, the things that they had checked off for my sons were so not in sync with their report cards that they've been getting. So to justify them being in this program, they had lied about their abilities. You know, and I was told from a lot of people that they do that just for the funding only because I fit the demographics with me being a single black mom of sons. Because I think that's how a lot of young chocolate men in America get this start onto a path that is so destructive and it's in like the pipeline to prison system basically. And um, my son in the first grade, I saw how his teacher was trying to make him this child who the documents said he was. And had I not been able to intervene and be a part of that, like his 
school experience, who knows, he, he might've been just because it made him angry. Like my child was coming home angry every day and I had no idea. And then I asked him, he said, well, because my teacher, she ignores me when I raise my hand. She always calls on the white kids, mom. And this is a six-year-old child being ignored. And he was so bright. Um, and so I went and sat, into the class, sat in the classroom and I saw where there was this one little white boy. He had rule over the classroom. He'd go turn the lights off. He'd do all kinds of things. There was no punishment. As a matter of fact, when it came to the awards day, this was the child that got the behavioral award, which I thought was so ironic. You know, it's so telling that your six-year-old saw that he was not seen by his teachers. And you telling the story that your son, all three of your sons, or just one of your sons, what? Was all, were all three of your sons put into the special program? Yes, yes. And the special program was for children with de developmental needs. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Just because the school said, well, she fits the demographic. She's a black woman. She's single. She's got boys. They must be developmentally deficient. Yes. And can you imagine what would have happened for their life had you not had them tested correctly and found out that instead of developmentally deficient, they were actually exceptional children. Yes. Yes. And they went into exceptional classes. And now yes. all three of your boys, your men, your young okay. men, because they're in their 20s now, are all having full lives with great things happening for them. They're smart. They're making a difference in the world. It just, that story of all the stories you tell, and I get the military even more now that you've shared what you shared. Yeah. The thing about the school, it just goes to show you that racism is systematic. It, there was a system that said if she's black, if she's single, if she's the mother of boys, the children go into developmentally deficient classes. That yes. is systemic racism. Right. As the military, is, go ahead. No, the military is the same way, I think, too, because I think the thing that bothered white people about me in the military so much was, well, I was a commissioned officer, but also because I was in the Signal Corps, the technological branch of the military. I wasn't supposed to be there, you know? I wasn't supposed that was to be where, there. first of all, you're a woman, second of all, you're black, so you were a double, a double threat. Yes. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences here with us. I totally appreciate it. And, you know, one of the things when we were talking, one of the, the resources that you pointed me to, and I always like to share something that we can do, an action that we can take. And uh, you mentioned to me a Netflix documentary by Chelsea Handler, and I love the title. Yeah. It's called Hello, Privilege. It's me, Chelsea. So what did you like about that documentary that you say that it's a good one to get an, get an eye on? Well, Chelsea's crazy. I, I love her. But um, she talks about how she knows she's privileged because she's white. And um, she even takes you back to her time when she was in high school and dating a black man, um, young man. And they'd be hanging out together and the cops would stop them. She'd be the one with the weed on her. But they took him to lock up and told her, girl, get your behind home. Mm. You know, um, just just she knows that 
privilege is what got her there because there are a lot of talented and brilliant people in the world, but they don't get that opportunity um, because it's not so much of what you know, but who you know right. still when it comes right. to America. Awesome. So take a look at that film. And let me just mention, the, you know, the term white privilege gets a lot of people up in arms. Yes. You know, I had this whole thing going on on my Facebook page when I talked about white privilege. And really all it says, it doesn't take anything away from you if you're white. Yeah, you probably worked really hard in your life and you worked multiple jobs to get where you are. And you may even feel that you were discriminated against because there were targets and black people got into a job before you did or something like that. It doesn't take anything away from you. And it doesn't mean that you have to have white guilt. I don't know where that comes from. All it means is that simply because of the color of your skin, you have to work that much harder. If you're a woman, you can relate to this, right? It's the same thing. If you're a woman, you have to work that much harder. Gentlemen, I know that you don't see your own privilege if you're a white man. It's a reality though. So thank you, New Love Jones, for sharing your experience, for being with us today. And I appreciate the, the uh, nod to Chelsea Handler. So take a look at that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and it'll give you, give you some insight into the reality of it. So this was Sister to Sister. Thank you again, New Love. I appreciate you so much. Uh, this was Sister to Sister. We're here every Tuesday. I look forward to seeing you again next week. And um, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening with an open mind and an open heart. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks, Thanks again, you. New Love. Bye now.